Spirit of life giving love and love giving life. Spirit of truth that does journey forth in a stream that runs from generation to generation and age to age. May we be bathed in your salubrious, encompassing, cleansing spirit. May we be inspired by those who have gone before us. May we be witness to those who struggle in our midst. May we be healed where we are in need of healing. May we as well, having received the blessings that come from being in community and experiencing love, may we be so emboldened as to become agents of that love and agents of change in a world so much in need of love, so much in need of change. Let us hold this moment together in quiet. In his An Autobiography of Religious Development, written in 1950, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote, It is quite easy for me to think of a God of love, mainly because I grew up in a family where love was central and where lovely relationships were ever-present. It is quite easy for me to think of the universe as basically friendly, mainly because of my uplifting hereditary and environmental circumstances, it is quite easy for me to lean more toward optimism than pessimism about human nature, mainly because of my childhood experiences. In his autobiography, Malcolm X wrote of his early years, people are always speculating, why am I as I am? To understand that of any person, his whole life from birth must be reviewed. All our experiences fuse into our personality. Everything that ever happened to us is an ingredient. I think that an objective reader may see how in the society to which I was exposed as a black youth here in America, for me to wind up in prison was just about inevitable. 8,000 years ago, the Chinese philosopher and sage Sage Lao Tzu wrote in his book of the Tao, if there is to be peace in the world, there must be peace in the nations. If there is to be peace in the nations, there must be peace in the cities. If there is to be peace in the cities, there must be peace between neighbors. If there is to be peace between neighbors, there must be peace in the home. If there is to be peace in the home, there must be peace in the heart. Thank you, Ginny. We certainly are keeping Ginny busy today. So I'll begin with a very brief explanation of February Focus Month. This is a review for those of you who might be familiar with February Focus Month, something of an orientation for those of you who may not. Our Focus Month has been a part of this congregation's annual program for the past 18 years. 
We've used this opportunity to provide deeper exploration into the, some of the more formidable issues of the day. They've included racism and peace and justice, sustainability, ethical eating and homophobia, to name just a few of the themes. This year our theme is the legacy of Martin and Malcolm. Because civil rights and anti-racism have been a part of our congregation's history nearly since its inception, and because Martin and Malcolm have left us such a rich legacy uh, in both civil rights and anti-racism to draw from as we continue our work in the creation of the beloved community, their legacy just seems like a wonderfully valuable wellspring that we might draw upon for our ongoing inspiration. So the worship services throughout the month of each February are designed to deal with various aspects of our theme. The hope is, as Ralph Waldo Emerson suggested in his Divinity School address, to raise up the issues of the day so that we might be able to see them through the lens of our religious sensibilities and values. To what end? To the end that we might be transformed through that process of looking, that we might be better prepared to relate to the issues of our day, both cooperatively and in our individual day-to-day lives in more intentional and meaningful and in more religious ways. So the purpose in maintaining a month-long focus is to promote an extensive, deep examination of the topic we are exploring in a way that cannot be accomplished in a single week. Our children will be exploring the legacy of Martin and Malcolm through their RE classes this month, and it is our custom during the focus month and the request is being made at this very instant. It's our uh, custom to ask each committee and organization and covenant group and council and board of trustees and any other groups within our congregation. We ask you to devote at least a portion of your time during this month to explore your group's relationship to our theme. We hope that a similar exploration might also take place in the homes of our members. It may become a valuable family experience to have such conversations around your supper table at night. Our mission here at the UU congregation is to seek transformation in our hearts, our homes, our community, and our world. And as is usually the case with our focus themes, this year's promotes an excellent opportunity to encourage every aspect of our mission. So, what I'll hope we might accomplish this morning is to first establish our theme. We'll look at the context of the theological and religious, spiritual underpinnings of Martin's and Malcolm's experiences. And then I'll hope to, to question how our individual and collective theological and religious underpinnings might inform our perspective through theirs. The question I feel compelled to address first is, Why is it important to consider the legacy of Martin and Malcolm together? Martin, after all, was a prophet not only of civil rights and desegregation, but like Mahatma Gandhi before him, he was an adamant prophet for nonviolence. At the core of his beliefs was the universalist claim, and he, he knew exactly what universalism is, and he called it his own. At the core of his beliefs was the universalist claim that God is a loving God and that humanity aligns itself to the divine when it expresses itself through loving nonviolence. Quite differently, Malcolm X refused to acquit himself and all black Americans of the need for self-defense. If self-defense in response to a violent oppressor is required, violence in return 
If self-defense in response to a violent oppressor required violence in return, that was well within the realm of Malcolm's spiritual and religious sensibilities. How then can we consider the legacy of these two men and the movements that they headed, for that matter, to be inextricably tied? The truth of it is, I've come to believe, is that if we fail to connect them, if we fail to see the relationship of Martin and Malcolm to each other, if we fail to see that their public impact and success were dependent on one another, we will also fail to recognize and to embrace the fullness of the legacy that has been left to us by these incredible giants of religious and social change in America. Last June, I, I spoke here in a sermon that's going to, uh, that ran considerably late for those of you who were here, as this morning's sermon is likely to run a bit late as well, um, about a very personal realization that I'd had during a recent trip to Haiti. Put simply, based on the poverty and the suffering that I witnessed there, based on what I observed as the redemption of that poverty and suffering through their profound faith in the Christian message, I came to see that on a very profound level, on a very deep level, there are no correct or incorrect theologies or religious paths as long as those paths uphold the sanctity of human life and of creation in general. There are only ways of seeing the world, spiritual and religious ways of seeing our experience in the world that allow us, allow humanity to move through our lives in ways that enable us to ascribe value and meaning, in ways that allow us to have faith and to have faith in the possibilities of hope, hope for ourselves, hope for all of humanity, hope even for the planet, for the universe. Our spiritual sensitivities and our religious beliefs are the inhalation and exhalation of the experiences of our lives and the experiences as well of our culture. We may ascribe authority to any number of sources for our understandings of those experiences. We may understand our experience through the lens of religious tradition on one end of the spectrum. We might draw our meanings through a lens of personal intuition at the other end of the spectrum. We might draw on any of so many ways of experiencing the world. What, whatever authority we might accept as our true authority, though, the point is that if our experiences are vastly different from one another's, so too will be what we believe about the world and what we believe we are called to do in the world. In the readings that we heard a few minutes ago, we got a, a glimpse of the very different kinds of experiences that Martin and Malcolm had from each other during their formative years, and it might bear value to look a little bit further into the different origins of our two heroes, and I would say that I trust that indeed already, uh, Martin is, is likely already a hero for those of us who are here, and I hope that if he isn't yet, by the conclusion of this month's exploration, Malcolm X might also come to be one of your heroes. A point of reference that I want to mention before going any further is that, that while there were a number of sources that I drew upon for these presentations, the primary source I will use is the book Martin and Malcolm and America, A Dream or a Nightmare. It was written by Reverend Dr. James H. Cohen, who is currently a distinguished 
professor at Union Theological Seminary in New York City. Dr. Cohn has probably provided the most useful and exhaustive analysis of the relationship by, uh, between Martin and Malcolm that exists. Martin King didn't create the concept of I have a dream for his speech at that great civil rights rally in Washington, D.C. on August 28, 1963. He had already been preaching about his dream for years by that time. Where did his dream come from? It was a dream for America that was born of the experience of a black southern man who knew far more privilege than did most of his race in that part of the world. Martin was the much-loved child of Alberta and Martin Luther King Sr. He was the son of a well-educated, prominent clergyman. The King family was not impoverished, but lived comfortably in the manse of the Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta. It was fully expected that Martin would receive an exemplary education and that he would go on to achieve whatever he might set his mind and his life course towards. Except for the warm love that he received from his parents, the characteristics of his upbringing were an overwhelming contradiction to the common African-American experience in the South throughout Martin's life. Martin saw, his, saw this disparity clearly. He felt called to a ministry of service, preaching the gospel of love to so many who had to get along in life on little more than love. Eventually, as we well know, that same call brought him to the front of the Montgomery bus boycott, to the front of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and to the front of the civil rights movement as well. It's important to understand the circumstances of Martin's privilege. He grew up evolving within an experience of loving security that was provided for him by Martin Sr. and Alberta. His understanding of the world was that the very source of the universe, which he knew well to be a loving creator, was inclined towards providing a secure and benevolent world for all of that creator's creation. Martin actually borrowed a line from one of our Unitarian forebears, Theodore Parker, to describe that benevolence. The moral arc of the universe is long, he said, but it bends towards justice. Because benevolence was hardly at hand for the vast, vast majority of his people, Martin's call to ministry was to promote the benevolence for all African Americans. If God held benevolence for white people, which was evident, Martin believed that he certainly held it for black people, too. If his call was to assure that blacks received their fair share of God's benevolence, he was also called by his universalist understandings to assure whites that theirs would not be compromised in the process. In the end, Martin saw his ministry to all of God's children. Martin's efforts towards justice were steeped in the same theological language and vision as were those of the majority culture of white Christian Americans. What was different was that his understanding of those values claimed that poor southern black Americans were just as deserving as whites because of their God-given unalienable rights. His theological understanding was that discrimination was a Christian sin, that it was wrong, and that it could not be condoned by a just and loving God. And so it was that justice and love 
were at the core of the theological, the spiritual, and the religious ambitions that Martin held within his dream. White America, called by Martin to live up to its own religious values, was scared and shaken to its core. Malcolm X's formative experience came out of a totally different context. His was the experience of a poor, urban, black child of the North. His experience of poverty, his own and those of his people, was not born of the apartheid segregation as in the South. His was born out of an experience of codified hatred that was ensconced in a well-fortified system of racism that imprisoned blacks in the ghettos, whose walls were reinforced by a social norm inside of those walls of self-hatred. Malcolm was one of eight children born to Louise and Jay Early Little of Omaha, Nebraska. His family moved further north to Lansing, Michigan soon after. Like Martin Sr., Earl, which was what Malcolm's father Early was called, Earl was also a preacher. Unlike Martin Sr., though, Earl did not preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. He preached the gospel of black nationalism. He was a strong follower and supporter of Marcus Garvey, then the nation's leading proponent of the black separationist and nationalist movement. Marcus Garvey was, was popular in this country in the, in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s. Despite the fact that Earl Little was a man of the cloth, he managed to be in very regular scapes, scrapes with legal authorities and with whites in general. In his autobiography, Malcolm wrote of an early experience that's a, a really good window into the formation of his spiritual and religious journey. He describes this incident that occurred when he was four years old. Imagine yourself a four-year-old in this experience. Shortly after my youngest sister was born came the nightmare night of 1929, my earliest vivid memory. I remember being suddenly snatched awake into a frightening confusion of pistol shots and shouting and smoke and flames. My father had shouted and shot at the two white men who had set the fire and were running away. Our home was burning down around us. We were lunging and bumping and tumbling all over each other trying to escape. My mother, with the baby in her arms, just made it into the yard before the house crashed in. Another formative and revealing experience occurred when Martin's eighth-grade English teacher, Mr. Ostrowski, discouraged him from becoming a lawyer and suggested carpentry as a more realistic goal for a, and he then used the N-word to Malcolm. In his biography, Malcolm wrote, it was then that I began to change inside. I drew away from white people. I came to class and I answered when called upon. It became a physical strain simply to sit in Mr. Ostrowski's class. Where the N-word had slipped off my back before, wherever I heard it now, I stopped and looked at whoever said it. And they looked surprised that I did. Malcolm endured many, many such experiences of, of horror and belittlement. He moved on to Boston, where he worked the streets as a hustler until that occupation landed him in the Charleston State Prison. And while incarcerated, he was introduced to the teachings of Elijah Muhammad. The theology of the Nation of Islam immediately seized Malcolm's attention. It stood in marked contrast to Christianity, and it made ultimate sense to Malcolm. 
This is not to say that Malcolm rejected the teachings of the prophet Jesus of Nazareth. It is to say that he saw the Christian church, which was created to deify that prophet, as one that had developed with a determination, a determination to obliterate the black race. There was no shortage of evidence to support Malcolm's conviction to that. Malcolm's life was transformed during the remainder of his incarceration. He read and studied everything that he could get his hands on that had been written by or about Elijah Muhammad. Upon his release, Malcolm joined Elijah Muhammad in Detroit and became a minister in the Nation of Islam. And as minister, he rose up in leadership to become Elijah Muhammad's second in command. He rose to become the predominant spokesperson for the entire Nation of Islam movement. For years, his devotion to Elijah Muhammad and the movement served as a powerful stimulus to his moral self-reform and self-education so that he could be an example to others and an effective evangelist in spreading the good news of what Islam could do for the caged-up black man, Malcolm said. Recognizing the plight of black Americans as a religious and spiritual battle, Malcolm redeemed the experience of his childhood and the ongoing experiences of his people in northern ghettos. He believed strongly that there was a God and that that God's name was Allah. He believed that Allah would judge harshly the injustices inflicted upon his people, that Allah would wreak restitution for those injustices upon those who had caused them. And if Allah would call upon Malcolm to be an instrument of that vengeance, Malcolm would be ready to do his part, and he encouraged others to be ready to do their part as well. Central to Malcolm's theology, similar to Martin's, was the theme of justice. Central to Malcolm's theology, similar to Martin's, was the theme of love. The difference in their understandings of love, though, was that for Martin, based in his experience of, of a loving family, Love was necessarily expressed then to all people. For Malcolm, though, based on his experience of violation and tyranny against him, black Americans had to learn to love themselves. Black Americans had to learn to love themselves was, was key to Malcolm's message. In order to break the oppression of white America, if white America was frightened by the nonviolent message of Martin Luther King, they were terrified to the marrow of their bones by the strident call to black nationalism by Malcolm X. So as we begin this focus month of exploration, there are some questions we might want to consider for ourselves. What has changed, if anything, in the structures of the racist oppression in the United States since the untimely deaths of these prophets some 45 years ago? Statistics regarding education, poverty, drug abuse, and incarceration might well inform our thinking as we address such a question. How do our religious values and perspectives, born of our own and our cultural experiences, encourage us to see our part in furthering Malcolm's dream, to consider our part in ending Malcolm's nightmare? We might consider just what we place our faith in, as in what is it that we hold as the source of what we value most in life and in the world. 
In what way does our faith call upon us to help create the beloved community where all people are not only created equal, but are truly equal beneficiaries of the justice and the bounty available in a land as blessed as ours? Next week, we'll be looking more closely at the interdependency of Martin and Malcolm's lives and ministries. For this week, though, my hope is that we'll use their example to examine our own theological, our own spiritual, our own religious underpinnings in order to better discover who we are and how we are called to be in this world. As we pursue this course, I would remind us all that we are not taking this journey alone and that we are together, together standing on the shoulders of some pretty incredible giants who have gone before us. Amen. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote, Change does not roll in on the wheels of inevitability, but comes through continuous struggle. And so we must straighten our backs and work for our freedom. A man can't ride you unless your back is bent. <laughs>